You guys ready for a Bible study? Good, good. Let's pray and we'll jump in the word together and see what God has for us. So God, we are thankful that you would gather us together. We're, we're really uh, grateful for your love and your grace in our lives. Uh, we are asking now that you would do what, you know, even as we, as we sang earlier, you would do what only you can do. And one of the things that only you can do is illuminate your scriptures. One of the things that only you can do, God, is make the scriptures come alive for us personally, applicationally, and powerfully. And so we turn our attention to you. Uh, we set our course towards you for the beginning of the week. We pray for Pastor Eric and the team that's in Israel. Continue to keep them safe and strong as they head into Jerusalem uh, and spend the rest of the, the, the ending of their trip uh, in Jerusalem. I know Pastor Scott Cox and, and his family is with them as well, and so we just pray for them. We pray that you would comfort uh, and strengthen and encourage them that even in this time of difficulty in their lives, uh, Lord, that you would use Israel and that your, your land in a way that only you can do in their lives. So open up your word to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You have your Bibles, open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a Bible study I entitled, Using the Bible the Right Way. Using your Bible the right way. By the time we come to Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we know, for those of you that have studied the, the letter, we know that it's a difficult time for him. He was faced on many occasions with just losing heart, with giving up, with quitting. It wasn't easy for him uh, to serve God. It wasn't an easy life for him dedicated to God. And on more than one occasion, including, I think, the substance of this letter, Paul wanted to quit and give up. I was just reading this morning in Luke chapter 18 in the New Living Translation, Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not give up. Not give up. And on more than one occasion, not only did Paul feel that, but he felt it necessary to encourage other churches, hey, don't give up. Jot it down. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we'll reap if what? We don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Why would Paul, why would the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write such a thing? Because it's true, isn't it? Over and over again, we are faced with wanting to quit, with wanting to just throw in the towel. We are faced with growing weary while we're doing good. We are faced with wanting to lose heart and just like, what's the use? Now, of course, the context here is in ministry, in serving God. Wanting to lose heart serving God, wanting to lose heart in, in giving yourself to him and serving within the church, serving as a believer. But I would say that the, some of you that are among us today are losing heart in your marriage. And you're ready to quit. Maybe there's even someone here today, and I believe this is a word from the Lord, that has the divorce papers. You're already, you're already planning what it's going to be like outside of your current marriage, which, by the way, the Lord would have for you to be your only marriage for life. But there you are. You've already invested. It's been hard. I'm certainly not wanting to minimize the difficulty that you faced, but divorce isn't the answer. Some of you are ready to quit in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe that's not you, but watching in live on the internet right now. You're not even here because you're, more of your steps are away from fellowship, not into fellowship. Maybe Paul's writing to you today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. But for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. 
Don't grow weary. And so we have in verse 1 of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, therefore, Paul says, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. Not a warning that Paul gives today, but a statement of all that he's faced and all that he's gone through and all the difficulties of his life. He says, look, I don't lose heart. We have this ministry. We receive daily mercy. I don't lose heart. I'm sticking it out. I'm staying strong. So let me ask you a couple questions. And this will require a raising of the hands. So don't be embarrassed. Because I have a feeling there will be a mighty washing wind coming through here of all the hands that are raised. <laughs> Number one. How many of you are or have been at a place where you've wanted to lose, you, you've lost heart, you wanted to quit? Just, just kind of tough times. Okay, so you're, we're not alone. We're not alone. It's true. You're in a room filled with people that are living real lives, facing real challenges. Some are harder than others. Different contexts, different places. So secondly, the second question is this. How many of you truly want to be used of God in your life? So if we did it at the same time, you would have your left hand and your right hand, and then you wave them in the air, wave them like you don't care, you know, like you would. You would be all like, that's my life. That's us. That's us. That's us. It's really a great description of what Paul would write to the Galatians, that the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another, so you don't do the things that you wish. That's where Paul is here as he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. Paul invested his life in this city. He invested years of his life to serve this unbelieving city. He watched a church birth out of nothing. He saw massive amounts of people leave paganism, leave their sinful ways behind, and he poured his life into this group to only be answered with these false teachers that came into the church and just a small group of people influenced the church to come against Paul, to turn against him. The only thing that I could relate to in my own life is, is like moving from Southern California, coming to Colorado, being used to the Lord, a small gathering of people, about 30 people, where we poured our life into and my family, we poured our life into our city, but we still are doing that, and the church continued to grow, and I was able to, and have been, be a part of marriages, and be a part of baby dedications, and be a part of officiating funerals of grandparents, and and family members. I mean, pouring your life into someone, and then in an instant, a few people come in, stir up the church against me, and now I'm writing a letter to say, wait a minute, guys. You know me. I was there with you. We walked alongside. I was there at your hospital bed, right there in your last breaths of your mom. I was there. Why would you believe them? That's where Paul is. You've got to get the passion in his heart. We don't get it from the pages, but it's like, guys, I gave you my life. I invested my life as I serve the Lord to you, and you're going to believe them? And in chapter 3, he just finished contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's why when verse 1, he says, therefore, you Bible students know that that word therefore is a connecting word. It connects back with what has just previously been said. It's a, it's a word of conclusion. You could say, instead of therefore, you can say, because of what I just shared with you, this is what you're supposed to do. This is the conclusion of the matter. And in chapter 3, you notice in verse 17, he speaks about the Lord being the Spirit. 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, because of the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in your life, because of the work of the new covenant, the new covenant, we get to serve God in the new covenant now. Now, I was here a little early and I was watching out in the parking lot and I didn't see any one of you, not one. Now, there might be one, but I doubt it. I didn't see anyone in the parking lot. Go get out of the car, go to the back and pull out a lamb from the back of your car and walk into service with a lamb ready for it to be sacrificed. I didn't meet anybody. And for that, I'm very thankful you get the new covenant. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, was once and for all delivered. It was, he was once and for all, he was slain from the foundation of the, of the earth, from the world. He, he, he crucified, he was crucified once for the forgiveness of our sins. And we don't have to bring lambs anymore. Aren't you glad? What a bloody mess that would be. But no longer. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, he died for us so that he would clean up the messes in our lives. That's where Paul is in verse 1. He says, hey, look, for all that God has done, how good he is to us. Therefore, we have this ministry, this ministry. He was encouraged by the ministry. He was encouraged by the ministry of grace. He was encouraged that he could serve in the new covenant and the newness of life. He was encouraged. You know, he saw, as I think we need to see, that ministry and serving Jesus is a privilege. It's a privilege. None of us deserve to serve him. None of us earned it. None of us are in a place where, you, of course, I serve Jesus because I, I should and because I deserve. No, no, none of us. It's a privilege. It's a blessed privilege. The word ministry can be misunderstood sometimes like, well, you know, there are ministers and then there are, there's me. No, no. The word ministry just means to serve. That's, that's really what the substance is. You just serve God wherever you are. Serving God in this church, serving God in the context of this church, serving God at your career, what you're doing in the home, raising the next generation. Hey, every time you change a diaper, you are serving the Lord. Think about that. And you're, you're like, Ed, when's the last time you changed diapers? About 18 years ago. But when I did, it was a blessing. They grew up so fast. Man, my little girl's driving today. Oh, man. That's crazy. You guys don't feel it because you're not your daughter, but I feel it. Serving the Lord, raising the next generation. Serving your husband, serving your wife. Having a a single life, the Bible says. A single life. You can dedicate yourself wholly to the things of God. Serving. It's a privilege. We're all in the ministry. We all have a calling to serve Jesus. The ministry is a gift. And Paul recognized it. He says, not only in verse 1 do we have this ministry, we have it. Because we have it, you can conclude that it's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. But secondly, we have mercy. We received mercy. You know, you got to understand, receiving mercy means you did not get what you deserved. Are you not happy? Are you not happy about that today? You did not get what you deserve. Do you want what you deserve? I don't want what I deserve. What I deserve is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I want the gift of God. I want the gift of God in my life. Mercy, you know, you're receiving mercy right now. You're in a place of receiving the mercy of God right now. 
You are not receiving what you deserve right now. I would even say that there are a few of you connected to us today that you're receiving mercy because you're in something that you need to get out of and God is patiently waiting for you to repent. You think maybe you're getting away with it, but you're not getting away with it. You think maybe nobody knows, but that's not true. You think that you're in a place where, well, hey, man, I haven't received the judgment of God yet, so I must be fine. No, no, you're not fine. Instead, you're in a place of receiving mercy. God is being merciful to you right now. He is being patient with you right now. He is asking you to repent. He's commanding you to repent. He's calling you to repent. Listen, we've received ministry, and we've also received mercy. God has been merciful, and he is merciful with us. And because we've received ministry, and because God is merciful, Paul says in verse 1, we don't lose heart. Are you ready to quit? Then I suggest that it's time to change your perspective a bit. And that's what Paul's teaching us. This is an important key. The way that you view your ministry helps to determine how you'll fulfill it. Let me repeat that. This is very important because Paul's in the midst of one of the biggest battles he's ever faced, and that is the battle of slander and gossip and accusation. You ever been on the other side of a slanderous statement against you? Have anybody ever gossiped about you? Has anybody a little clicked their little keyboard on the, on the computer and put up some post or some Facebook thing or some Twitter thing? Something that you're like, you read it and you go, that's not true. Why would you think of that like about me? That's simply not true. Think about it from the people that you love and care and cherish. That's where Paul is. He's in the battle of his life. And later on, he's just going to say, this is just crazy for me to write this. I wish I didn't even have to write this. I can't even believe I'm writing this. But because we, are, we have a love relationship, I'm going to write it. And that's where he is here. He says, we don't lose heart. What, what helped him to persevere and not quit is his perspective. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to the end of chapter 4. Just, to, just turn a page, perhaps, or it's on the same page. And notice with me in verse 16. Here's the conclusion of this chapter. The conclusion is, therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing. Can I get an amen for that? Only a few people. The rest of you are young and think it'll never happen to you. In the hotel today, I got up. There's not even any stairs in the hotel and my body was making noises. Usually when you come down the stairs in the morning, you're like snap, crackle, and pop. Like it's like, what is that? Why? Because the outward man is perishing. You're going to see Jesus one day. He's coming or you're going, but we're going to see Jesus. And the outward man is perishing. We all feel it in one way or another, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I can get a big amen for that. God is working on the inside of your life. He's working in your life. Yeah, yeah, we are getting older. That's, that's a fancy way the outward man is perishing. That's just a fancy word of saying you're all getting older. We're all getting older by age. But the inward man is like a young, you know, you still feel like you're a 16-year-old man in the Lord. And you're just so young and vibrant. You want to serve God with all that you have. You wake up in the morning. You're like, man, God, your mercies are new every morning. I'm ready to serve you. I'm ready to give my life to you. Yeah, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And then he says in verse 17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. You might want to mark that. Not against us, but for us. 
a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That was Paul's perspective. And twice now in the same chapter, he says, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Why? Because you have an eternal perspective. Because ministry, serving God's people, serving in a fallen and broken world is hard. It's hard. It's difficult. Ministering to broken lives, it's crushing on your own heart. You're around hurting people, and I think you've learned this on a personal level, but it's true. Hurting people have a tendency to hurt the people that are closest to them. And so you're always dealing with hurt and pain and brokenness in a world that's gone crazy and backwards, in a culture. It's not just our culture. You travel around the world, it's every culture has turned their back on God. Every culture has turned their back on the God that loved them and sent his own son, Jesus. It's, it's a hard life. It's a difficult life. Paul wrote earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble, or another way of saying that is the tribulation that came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of our lives. That's ministry. That's ministry. You should put that on our ministry applications for our church. Question number one, do you, is Rocky Mountain Calvary your home church? Yes. Question number two, are you ready to be hurt like you've never been hurt before? Um, uh, yes, no, I'm not sure. Okay, not sure. Check. Are you ready to be burdened so that there's a point in your life where you're just like, I don't think I want to live anymore. You're like, no, I don't think I want to serve. But that's not what we put on our applications. We have smiley faces. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Because it is. But it's going to be hard. And if you don't have the right perspective, it's going to be harder. An eternal perspective. That what you're doing matters. I think of all the men and women and the boys and girls that are teaching in the Sunday school right now. They've stepped up to get down on the kid's level and tell them about the love of Jesus. They do that for a couple reasons. Number one, they're doing that because God called them to do that. God spoke to them. God moved them to step into that area. Secondly, they're doing it so that the kids aren't in here running around, flipping out, jumping on the chairs, and just bored to, their, bored to death in here. They don't want, they, they want, we want to be able to have the kids learn the gospel at their level and give the parents an option. To give the parents an option. And thirdly, they're doing it They're doing it because they want to honor the Lord with their lives. And that's true for any level of service. To create a teaching atmosphere in here. So that we as adults can learn the word of God without distraction. And so the kids can learn the word of God at their level without distraction. And together we can grow. And I believe that even some of the Sunday school teachers in there, they're thinking about, man, I'm losing heart. It's tired. The kids aren't in here. They're in there. And it's hard. And if you teach Sunday school or you're an usher around here or you serve up in the cafe, watching you guys serve in the cafe is amazing. You do so much good in the context of the ministry here. Don't lose heart. You go, Ed, how? Well, you know, if you're in the cafe making sandwiches, you've got to understand, man, you are serving God's people, preparing them for the word of God. You're feeding them physically, but you're feeding them physically in the name of Jesus Christ so that they can come here early. They can get here all set up. They can come here without distraction. And what you're doing, you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. I think of those of you that drive through the city every day, all week. That's what your job is. You drive through the city. 
And the traffic up and down Academy is crazy. The tra- traffic down I-25, as you get down into downtown, it all kind of bottlenecks. And you're all, I mean, it's, you, you know, I don't know how you do it. Don't lose heart. Because God is using you as you drive around the city. You forget that you're not just delivering packages. You're not just fixing someone's pipes. God is connecting you with people all around the city in the name of Jesus Christ. But it's hard. It's difficult. It's hard in what you're doing. And yet through it all, Paul didn't lose heart. And may we not lose heart. Because with the divine calling of God comes the divine enabling. And Paul trusted God through the difficulties. Turn over to Psalm 35. Let me show you something. Excuse me, Psalm 37. Turn over to Psalm 37. Let me show you something. Because this is such an encouraging passage of Scripture. There's at least two truths that we learn here when it comes to the ministry we've been giving, given and to the mercy that God has shown us. Psalm 37, pick up with me there in verse 3. You know, I already beat you guys there, you, you iPadders. You know, you guys have your iPad. We can run circles around you with our Bibles. You know that, right? We don't have to click, 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 boom, boom, boom. I can go, I can go anywhere faster than you right now. Boom, boom, boom. I just wanted you to know that. Just something about a real Bible. I mean, I love, I love the iPad, and I, have, I use one myself, but there's something about a Bible. And, and you know what? The Bibles, they smell good, too. <laughs> Try smelling your iPad. It's nothing, man. Nothing there. All this technology. Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. And this is the promise. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now there's a twofold application here. One, there's that sense of, hey man, those desires that you have on your heart, you lift them up to the Lord as you're trusting and dwelling and God will answer your prayers. I can see that, but I really don't see, I don't really believe that's the full context of what David's writing here. Instead, I think that as you're trusting in the Lord, dwelling and feeding on his faithfulness, God will actually give you new desires that you didn't have before. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And and God has given you that calling in life to see that your life matters for the kingdom. And he gives you the desires. But not only that, notice this, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And here's the key. You might want to mark this. He shall bring it to pass. That's a word of divine enabling. The power of God in your life. He'll bring it to pass. It doesn't depend upon you. It's not your works, not your energy, not your effort. God will bring it to pass in your life. What he's begun, the Bible says, he is faithful to complete it. He, the Bible says, will perfect that which concerns me. And so I can trust him with my life. He's going to bring it to pass. He's got the bookends of my life from beginning to end. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. Ministry and serving God is that desire that God puts deep down in our hearts. And it's our response, really. God is the initiator. And it's our response to the goodness and greatness that he has for us. Now, Charles Spurgeon was a man of God that, that man was used in incredible ways. He wrote a book, for those of you that want to get into ministry and just serving God. He wrote a book. It's actually a collection of, of lectures that he gave in his pastor school. It's called Lectures to My Students. Let me share a paragraph with you from his second lecture. It's called The Call to Ministry. He said this. All are not called to labor in word and doctrine or to be elders or to exercise the office of a bishop, nor should all aspire to such works, since the gifts necessary are nowhere promised to all. 
But those should addict themselves to such important engagements who feel, like the apostle, that they have received this ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. So again, his con- the context of the people he's talking to are the people that want to be pastors. And he's just looking out at a group of men that want to be pastors. He says, look, if you don't have a calling to a pastor, don't do it. Don't do it. You have to have the call, like Paul says here. But again, as we pull back for a second and just think of the call of God in our life in a general sense, listen, you have to have that sense that you know you belong to God and you will go anywhere and do anything for him. He goes on to say, no man may intrude into the sheepfold as an under shepherd. He must have an eye to the chief shepherd and wait on his beck and call. Wherever a man stands forth as God's ambassador, he must wait for the call from above. And if he does not so, but rushes into the sacred office, the Lord will say of him and others like him, I sent them not, neither have commanded them. Therefore, they should not profit profit this people at all, saith the Lord. You want to hear the call of God in your life. You want to know what your spiritual giftings are. And then you want to step out in faith. Confidence comes when we understand the calling and the enabling of the Lord that he will bring it to pass. He will bring it to pass. He knows that in every area of ministerial service where God guides, he's always faithful to provide and give the strength that you need to carry on. You mom, you dad, you single mom, you, you broken family. Wherever you are in life, God will bring it to pass. It's been said that God doesn't always call the equipped, but he always equips the called. There's always an equipping of the Lord for us. And now we see because of the ministry that's been given to us, and now we see because of the mercy of God, we don't quit. We don't quit. And I compel you today. I believe the Lord would send me here today, just a few miles uh, south from where I live. Don't quit. Don't quit. Let me show you another thing before we leave in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's the next verse. It's really the sum of, of where Paul was leaning on in his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we're not losing heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul was very open about his life and ministry. And yet there was a group of people that accused Paul of covering up his craftiness with a veneer of fake piety. They accused Paul of faking it, of lying, of using the word of God to his own advantage. Taking advantage of the Corinthian church. But he says, no way. He's, this verse 2 is like a, it's like a small little defense of, he says, no, you guys know that we lived open lives. We, we weren't deceitful. We weren't lying. There were no backdoor meetings. We were open before you. Not only that, but they accused Paul of teaching a watered-down version of the truth. When it says that they were walking in craftiness and handling the word of God deceitfully. That word deceitfully in the original language literally means to adulterate or dilute, to make it somehow different than what it really means. You could say today, because we hear that said, we hear that accusation today, for those of us that champion the grace of God and champion the new covenant, we'll hear people go, well, you're just teaching cheap grace. There's no way we're teaching cheap grace because grace isn't cheap. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace is not cheap. 
But don't think for a moment that by your good deeds and your efforts, you will earn the favor of God. You can't and you won't. The favor of God comes through his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful that when God looks at me, he sees me through the lens of grace. That he's still merciful and gracious with me. But they accused Paul of that. They said he was covering up the law or dismissing it. But he wasn't. He was neither covering it up nor dismissing it. He was teaching the truth that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the end of the law to all who believe. He's, he is the fullness of righteousness to all that believe. He trusted that the word of God would speak to the inner man. He trusted in the simplicity of unveiling the word of God to people and that the Holy Spirit would, like he says here, manifest the truth in their lives. And even that was an accusation that came against him. So as we close today, it brings up a very important question in the life of Paul, and it's simply this. How can we know if someone's handling the word of God deceitfully? How can we know if someone is handling the word of God correctly or misusing it deceitfully or craftily for gain? Because I'm telling you, we know many that do just that. It's very obvious. Even now, taking advantage of the purity of faith in so many wanting to just please God. Now, I don't have cable anymore. We haven't had cable or dish or anything in our house for years and years. But in the hotel today, I just happened to flip on the TV and flipping through some of those so-called Christian channels, there was that guy that's always that guy that's at the piano looking into the camera and he's saying, send in your $1,000 seed love faith gift. Send it in because you, we need 1,000 people to give $1,000 because we've got 1,000 prayers and those, and they changed their voice and everything about them. And I just wanted, it wasn't my TV, but I just wanted to take that TV and crack it over my knee or throw it out the window. That would have cost Rocky Mountain Calvary a lot, so I didn't do that. (laughs) I don't know about you, but those guys ticked me off. Because if you were sitting in my office, or you were with me after a service of the countless people that I've met in tears, crushed and broken over being taken advantage of, these men and women that say they're coming in the name of God, using the Bible deceitfully, using the Bible craftily, using the Bible in a way. There's a woman that I just met. She's brand new, the fiance of a very trusted brother in our church. And her story, I'm going to encourage her to write her story down. One day I'm going to ask her to write me just a paragraph so I can share it with her permission. I don't have that yet. But if you listen to your story, you'd cry with her too of how she was treated in God's name. It's absolutely unacceptable. But how would we know? How can you know? How do you know how do, you, how, how do you know how to use the Bible properly? Peter said this. He told the pastors in, in the New Living Translation, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Care for the flock of God entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it. Or I think in the Old King James or in the King, New King James, it says not for dishonest gain. Not for dishonest gain. So how can we tell if the Bible is being used correctly? Because we know anyone can quote a scripture and use it any way they want. Not just preachers, but politicians, friends, family, TV personalities. Folks seem to know what the Bible says, but not what it means. So to help us, I want to give you a little lesson, a simple introduction to Bible interpretation. And there's a fancy word for it. It's called biblical hermeneutics. 
Let me smell that, smell that for you. It doesn't smell good. Let me spell that for you. H-E-R. <laughs> you guys are going to write Pastor Eric. I'll never get invited back again, but that's fine. One-time shot. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Biblical hermeneutics. It's just a fancy word to describe the art and science of biblical interpretation. Let me suggest a book for you, for those of you that want to go in. It's a very simple and a very easy introduction on this topic. So you can handle the Word of God right. It's called How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It by Skip Heitzig. How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It. It's a very basic, simple, take you about 45 minutes or so to read the book. And I think the new version actually has the MP3 Bible studies in the back uh, for you. And it's a simple introduction to this, but I want to summarize it for you. So something you can chew on this week and something you can really consider so that you can learn how to use the Bible. Number one, if you're taking notes, here, here are the simple steps of biblical hermeneutics. They're not exhaustive. We don't have time, but simple steps. Number one, to use the Bible correctly, you always interpret the text in light of the context. We always interpret the text in light of the context. We need to pay attention to what comes before and after the passage in order to understand its true and accurate meaning. so, So you have all probably met people that have taken scriptures out of context. So they've taken a scripture and said, oh, it means this, this, and this. And you're like, no, 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 that's not what he said at all. And how could you possibly say that? Because there was something before it and after it, there's context. Number two. You always interpret the text in light of the meaning of the words themselves. You know, words have meanings. The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew, a little bit in the Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the words have meanings. They have very specific meanings. For example, one example of that is a beautiful one. It's the word baptism. The word baptism is just what's known as a transliteration of the Greek word bapto or baptizo, either one, depending on if it's a verb or a noun. And it's a beautiful word. It has a very specific meaning. So when we have a baptism, like you will here in just a few weeks, we believe in believer's baptism and we believe in full submersion. And so some will come and go, I can't believe, why are you baptizing that way? Why aren't you sprinkling? Why aren't you pouring water over their head? That's the tradition I grew up in. Why aren't you doing that? Well, one of the reasons we're doing that is because the word baptism has a very specific meaning to it. It literally means to be submerged. That's what it means. When it was used in the first century, it was used to describe a lot of things. But one of the things that that word was used to describe was taking of a white garment and dipping it into a solution of dye. You know, let's say purple dye. That you would take something white and you would completely submerge it. And when you would bring it out, it wouldn't be white anymore. It would be purple. And the reason it would be is because you baptized it. And you baptized it by what? Submerging it. And over and over, it's a word that spoke of sunken ships. It has meaning to it. And so a lot of of your questions can be answered if you just look the word up. Just the word. It has meaning. Thirdly, thirdly. You always interpret the text in light of the grammar of the sentence. Yes, sentences are supposed to follow grammar rules. There's an order and a word usage. And I bet you wish you paid a little more attention in English class, didn't you? 
which you just checked out. It's so funny. I, I have a website where I post a lot of things and put a lot of stuff up, a personal website and as well as, as the church website. But I have a personal one, and I write a lot of articles, and I write them pretty quick. So recently, there's a sister in our church who I am sure it took her a while to write this email to me. But she wrote something like, I'm loving your blog. I'm loving your website, Pastor Ed. And, and it's great and very encouraging. And then the second paragraph, but... But I've noticed quite a few errors and things with grammar. And I, I know it's a good blog, but I just, can, can, I, can I change and can I edit your blog? And I'm like, of course. I sent back, send it back. Yes, do it. Change whatever you want. I don't know. I know I don't have the right grammar. And so then she sent it back with this long list of like, man, she found a lot. of. I didn't know I had that many problems. <laughs> And I started looking at it and I'm like, you know what? I can't fix all this stuff. I'm going to ask the web guy if, she, if they could just give you access and then you can go in and change it anytime you And that's what she's doing. I thank you grammar queens and grammar kings here. I just want to publicly thank you because the world needs you to make sure that we keep things in order. But you know, when you're studying the Bible, you got to pay attention to that kind of stuff. The word order, the grammar of the sentence, very important. Number four, number four. When you interpret the scriptures and use it properly, you need to interpret the text according to the historical background by which it was written. What was going on in the time? It's important to pay attention to what's going on during that time, the local customs, the idioms, the figures of speech, and you can't just pour meanings of 2016 and Western culture into the Eastern mindset of the Middle East. You can't do that. You can't just take the scripture and say, well, this, is, this refers to America. Before you ever find out what it refers to America, you need to know what did Jesus mean when he was talking to the people in front of him. It's very important. Number five, and finally, we always interpret the text in light of the unity of the Bible as a whole. And what I mean by that is simply this. If you're studying the scriptures, you've gone through all the rules, and you come to a conclusion that contradicts another part of the Bible, I just want you to know ahead of time, you're wrong. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible is one unit, 66 books, but only one author and one theme. And so if you come up, well, I've got a new revelation. No, you don't. There isn't a new revelation that contradicts any. If you come up with, I've got a new thing that nobody's ever found, I doubt it. The Bible's been around a long time. And when you study the scriptures, it's not, the Bible is not going to contradict itself. If you've come to the text, a conclusion of the text that contradicts another part of the Bible, it's incorrect. So with that, Paul is following through with these steps so that he could say, we didn't walk in craftiness. Our lives were open to you. We didn't handle the word of God deceitfully. You can open up the word. I mean, in Acts chapter 17, remember when Paul came uh, to the area of Berea? And the Bereans were given such a great, they have such a great reputation. You and I, most of us have probably said, I want to be a Berean. Can you imagine Paul coming to Rocky Mountain Calvary and sharing the Bible study and then all of us go home to make sure that he was right in what he shared? That's what they did. Even though Paul was an apostle, they studied the scriptures to make sure what Paul taught was true. It says that they were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians. Because when Paul shared something, they studied to make sure it was true. And you and I need to do that with the scriptures. And today we have so many tools that I didn't have when I first started out. When I first started out, I had to put like 10 books out on a table. 
And I had to pull this one and pull this one and look at this number, the Strong's number. I had to look it up over here and look it up. But now it's just one little click of a button. I can walk around with my iPad. doesn't smell the same, but I can walk with my iPad and I can click a button on my computer and, and I'm on the program here, it'll give me everything I'm looking for. But if you're looking for a tool to do this, let me recommend a website to you. It's called blueletterbible.org. Blue Letter Bible. It's free, completely free. They do ask for donations from time to time, but on there they have dictionaries, they have commentaries, they have word studies, they have historical background, they have videos, they have, man, everything you could possibly look for in an introductory basic study package. And it would be worth your time. The Bible says to study to show yourself approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's true for young Timothy and it's true for us. And we might be men and women that know how to use the Bible, that realize, what does it begin with? The right perspective. That we realize the ministry that's been given to us, the, the privilege that at work, I still remember the first person I ever led to the Lord in our little cubicle uh, at work. It was amazing. It was just the glory of God came down on what was normally a place where we just answered the phones. <laughs> that's all we did. We just answered the phones. And yet for a brief moment, I was sharing my testimony and the power of God. This sister, she's still walking with the Lord today. You know, the fact that we can open the Bible and we could turn around and say, well, read this to me. What does it say? It's a privilege. God is being merciful with you and me. He's allowing us to engage and be a part of what God, what he's doing in our community today. He's put you in that place. You're living in that apartment. You're living in that neighborhood. You're working at that workplace. You're looking for a job on the unemployment line right now. Why? So that God can connect you with people that you would know otherwise be connected with that may never darken the doors of a church. But God, isn't God, he's amazing. I mean, it's an understatement, but isn't God amazing that he brings the church together, but then what does he do? He sends the church out into the city. That's how he reaches the lost. Use the Bible right. Take the time to understand the scriptures. Don't be taken advantage. Notice this last thing, because I want to commend you to this. He says, I commend ourselves, this is verse 2, to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what he was saying? He says, you guys know. You guys know. Paul says, you know that I was upright with you. You know that. You know. You check your conscience on that. But I also think at the same time, he was also declaring he has a clean conscience. I commend myself to all of our consciences, but I have found in my own life, and I'm sure you have too, that there's no other way to get a good night's sleep but then laying your head down on the pillow of a clean conscience. Well, you just know everything's clean before the Lord. Everything is right. Everything is on. Man, as best of my ability, I'm right with the Lord. I love him. He loves me. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not crafty. I'm not deceitful. I love the Lord. I love his word. I'm praying every day, and I'm wanting to make a difference until he returns. I want to do business until he returns. I want to be used greatly until I see Jesus face to face. Amen? So God, we just thank you. Um, you know, the simplicity of your word is very powerful. Uh, we're very grateful to you, God, that you would entrust to us your word, the privilege, the merciful gift of your word. We're just asking you now to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would use, you know, some of the little things of hermeneutics and things. I know uh, for some, they just think, you know, I don't know, I'm going to put that much time, but I pray they would. So they could walk in a way that um, they would be in a place of integrity. 
they would be in place of string. And collectively, God, in, in our cities today, we, we want to be used by you, God. We want to we be vessels in your hands. Uh, we, we were like, you know, in the beginning of our time, we, we know what hard times are like. And we also know what the desire to follow you is like. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would form and fashion us. That we wouldn't just be merely religious, going through the motions. But that we would be able to write a letter ourselves. Hey, you know our lives. You know that I haven't been deceitful. You know that I haven't been crafty. You know in another place, Paul said, I haven't neglected to give you the whole counsel of God. And I pray against those ministries that would want to take advantage of people. That would want to take from them that would be spouting off false teaching and trying to take their money and use it for dishonest gain. And Lord, we certainly don't stand in judgment. They stand or fall before you, but it's pretty obvious their doctrine is not correct. It's pretty obvious that they're not reflecting your heart, your character, your nature. And so we just pray against that, but for more than anything, we pray for ourselves, that our lives would reflect your character and your nature, and that the ministry you've entrusted to us We would always have our eye to the chief shepherd for your beck and call and command. We'd always be looking to you for direction. We'd always be looking to you uh, for that help and that strength in following you. In Jesus' name, amen.